This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with Nick Tusa, K5EF. Good morning, Nick. Hi, good morning, Steve. How are you? Good. Nick's an author, and he has recently released a brand new book called Wes Shum, Amateur Radio's Unsung Hero. And I guess the most obvious question to ask straight away is, why is he, or was he, he passed away several years ago, why was he an unsung hero? Well, because um, Wes was very instrumental uh, in the early days of the development of single sideband in amateur radio, and was was a really a um, uh, an unbridled force, so to speak. He presented uh, the concept of single sideband at various conventions and ham fests throughout the country uh, in the early 50s, got a lot of attention with single sideband, taught people the, the advantages of it versus amplitude modulation at the time, how much more spectrally efficient it was, um, how it cut through the QRM, how it eliminated the horrible amounts of heterodynes that were on 75 and 20 meters. And he built a really spectacular company that, that was so innovative and so far ahead of uh, the field at that time. And then suddenly it was all gone and people forgot about him, didn't realize uh, what had happened and why the, his company disappeared. And it was a compelling story, I thought. Um, I was lucky enough ha- to have Wes as my uh, friend and engineer mentor uh, throughout a large portion of my life over 40 years. And um, I felt there was a story that, that the amateur community should hear uh, about not just Wes Shum, but the experimental drive of so many amateurs and how they brought uh, new ideas and new technology uh, to the commercial sector. So many new uh, products and ideas are developed by hams in their lab workshops at home. And I just felt like today's hams probably don't realize the contributions that so many have made to the art and science of radio. That is true. Now, I read your book, of course, and I really enjoyed right. it, by the way. <laughs> you start at the very beginning, and there's some uh, intriguing and amusing uh, anecdotes, uh, one of which, and correct me if I'm wrong here, during Prohibition, Wes assisted his father in some bootlegging operations. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah, he did. He was a just a, a small tyke, just a maybe four or five years old. And uh, back then, of course, you know, with Prohibition, um, uh, his father had lost it, effectively lost his business in, in providing cigars to, to taverns and bar rooms throughout the Chicago area uh, because the bars were all shut down. Well, they had speakeasies, which were kind of like private clubs. And uh, in any event, folks were making this, this homebrew um, uh, alcohol. And um, he enlisted uh, Wes uh, to go with him on these midnight run delivery. There was a pretty interesting story about that in the book. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> it sounds potentially dangerous, or it could have been dangerous. <laughs> yeah, well, he was, they were stopped at a roadblock, and, and uh, Wes 
uh, put on an act of, uh, he was in the back seat of the car and laying on top of the, the, the compartment that was under the seat that had all the booze in it. So almost on cue, he started crying when the policeman shined a flashlight into his eyes and his father screamed at the cop, told him he was abusing and waking this child up. And uh, the policeman was so, so, so traumatized, as we call it down here, you know, uh, that he, he just waved the, the car on. And as soon as they were out of, uh, out of uh, viewing range of the policeman, they both started laughing uncontrollably in the car. You know, here's a little five-year-old kid becoming a bootlegger. And later <laughs> on, he became our unsung amateur radio hero. <laughs> I noted from the book that as he became an adult, a young adult, um, one of the first things uh, that he was involved with was, uh, as I recall it, audio uh, for uh, hearing impaired children. Is that accurate? Uh, that was actually after the war. Well, that was um, after the war. Okay. Yes. During the war, he was, um, he was employed by a company called Go- Covert Dual Signal Company uh, Corporation. And uh, they built products that were part of the war effort. Um, West became their, um, their lead engineer because the engineer they had at that company had passed away. And um, back then, you know, uh, young people grew up a lot faster um, during the Depression and the war years and, and, than we do today. Lots of responsibility were pushed on on uh, young people at that point. Now, they were expected to carry their load early. And uh, Wes's amateur radio hobby and, and drive to become uh, a radio engineer is what landed him a job at, at Cobra Duel. And they built all sorts of, and he was instrumental in lots of them. In your book, you mention uh, an intriguing device that I had never heard of that, at least as I understand it from your description, was able to decoy German torpedoes that were fired at convoys? What it was was um, a device that was towed behind minesweepers that, had, that were pulling a paravane. That's and it. a paravane is a device that has a, an explosive unit. And uh, associated with that were um, underwater microphones. And Wes's project uh, at Covidule was to develop and build a um, frequency-selective um, um, amplifier that was tuned to the frequency of the torpedo screws. As, it, as the torpedo was, was um, uh, propagating through water, it made a noise. And as that noise got closer to the ship, the, uh, this, this amplifier that they developed was tuned to those, that, that sound, those frequencies. As it got closer and closer, the amplitude level would build up, and finally it would trigger a thyrotron, which is like a, a silicon-controlled rectifier in today's world, and it would uh, explode one of these paravane devices. The idea was to, to pancake or disable a torpedo, and in fact, they did. And um, the Navy actually brought uh, an example of uh, a flattened torpedo to COVID duel so they could see what the effect was of their, their, uh, their product. So it, uh, what it did was it dramatically uh, lowered the number of ships that were sunk uh, by the Germans after this system employed. After the war, he was one of the strongest proponents for the use of single sideband in the amateur radio community. Incidentally, your book is not just a, a, a biography 
of Weshum. You also go into a fair amount of technical details about what he developed. And in particular, um, I recall reading about the 10A. That's the, uh, was that the first single sideband transmitter? Yeah, that was the first single sideband, commercial single sideband transmitter that was available to the amateurs that covered all the amateur band. Uh, in fact, it covered 160 through 10 meters. Um, but the idea was it was um, simplified and relatively inexpensive way for amateurs to experiment and utilize single sideband technology. Back then, uh, phone communications was using amplitude back in the in the late 40s and early very early 1950s. Actually, AM was a popular mode all the way into the, the early 1960s, really. And um, what the 10A did was it, it provided an inexpensive way for amateur experiments. Back in the in the like the 1950-51 time frame, it was tough to, to develop a, a single sideband transmitter. You know, most folks were using um, filters to eliminate the unwanted sideband, but at that point in time, there were no commercially available crystal filters um, for the amateurs. And a mechanical filter hasn't, hadn't been perfected to the point where it was being mass-produced so the amateurs could. So um, uh, folks resorted to using surplus crystals from World War II that were actually tank radio uh, transmitter receiver crystals that happened to be in the 450 kilohertz range, the IF range that most folks use today. And... Um, they would fashion their own lattice filters, but they would have to go through bunches of crystals to find suitable ones to make a, a decent um, filter that had a relatively flat frequency response from maybe 300, 3,000 um, cycles, and then good steep roll-off to eliminate the sideman. Well, that was a hit-and-miss thing. Um, there was another technique uh, to develop single sideband, which used simply resistors and capacitors. It didn't require... Uh, specialized and, and custom-made crystals to develop filters, and that was termed the phasing. It was uh, that was one that was promoted by uh, engineers at General Electric. It's kind of interesting. There were after the war, there were two um, regions in the United States that were experimenting amateurs. I'm talking experimenting sideband. The West Coast guys at Stanford University, uh, which were principally building filter rigs, and then you had this other group over in. New York, uh, hams that were working for the General Electric Corps that were experimenting with this, this phasing technique, which used um, trigonometric pr principles in order to reinforce one sideband and cancel the other out. That's the technique that Wes utilized because, again, it was inexpensive and it was a way of bringing the technologies quickly. In the book, you spend a number of pages, Nick, talking about the bittersweet story surrounding the 100V transmitter. What is that story? <laughs> there was plenty of stories involved in the 100V. The 100V was absolutely the most advanced uh, radio transmitter. I'm not talking about amateur. I'm talking about commercial as well. That was developed, started in 1954, uh, completed the prototype in 1955, uh, end of 55, early 50. Now, this device uh, utilized a, a uh, number of, of patents that had been developed, designs that had been developed by Joe Batchelor, one of um, uh, West's lead engineers at Central. And 
the idea was, you know, in order to utilize a transmitter then, um, to get it on frequency and operational, you had to do a lot of adjustment driver and final amplifier stage. Back in the day, it was, you know, you the grid, you dip the plate, you adjusted the load control until you got a proper match. You know, it took some time in order to make a, a, um, a transmitter operational in a band. And then as you move frequency, sometimes you'd have to peak all these things up again. So uh, their concept was, let's make this no tune, whereas all the tuning was done uh, by design so that the operator didn't have to adjust plate and load control. And it was fully automatic. And um, that was what was revolutionary about the 100V transmit. It, the only thing that you tuned on it was the VFO, which was quite unusual for the day. Yes. It's commonplace today, but uh, it was uh, groundbreaking in the mid-50s. You uh, detail in your book how... Zenith acquired Central Electronics, but then relatively shortly afterward uh, shut down the company in, in 1962. And if I read correctly, it seemed to have, understandably, a strong emotional impact on Wes uh, having that shut down. And I think, I'm not quoting you directly from the book, but uh, it was to the effect that Wes didn't really return to amateur radio in terms of at least, uh, oh, designing and building uh, for the rest of his life. Is that right? Oh, that's correct. Yeah. It, um, well, you have to put yourself in, in his position. You know, he, he, he promoted this concept of single sideband throughout the United States. That was all through the early years of 1952, four, five, um, promoting and explaining how single sideband worked. And he developed a company that brought this technology. Then they developed these these groundbreaking products, a 600L amplifier, which was no there was no plate tuning control, only had a band switch on. Now this is in 1954 that you have a, a transmitter, 600 watt PEP amplifier that you didn't have to tune. All it had on it was a band switch, a meter switch, and a meter in the front. <laughs> was it? You know, it's kind of like the solid state radios today. Um, likewise, they developed this, this transmitter, 100B, that, that operated without tuning on all the bands. It had all the modes, including teletype, radio, RTTY, FSK, uh, had speech processing uh, built in. It was really an incredible set. Way ahead of its time. Okay, so he develops all this stuff. Zenith Radio acquires his, his company which gives them the capital and the resources to really bring it out to market. And they, they built 1,500 of these transmitters and another 500 of the advanced 200. And then suddenly they shut it down. And the reason they shut it down was because of color television. It was such a dramatic market back in 1961 where Zenith was selling, oh, $260 million worth of color TVs that year. And amateur radio sales were, what, $3 million? It just isn't, didn't make sense to turn it off. But suddenly, he was out without a company. He lost control of all the patents that they had developed with Central Electronics because Zenith wanted to keep the military, decided to. And so suddenly, he was not only uh, not building his own product and out of amateur radio, but Zenith made no announcement about why they had deactivated the company. It just suddenly shut down. And it was an emotional shock to which you would expect anyone. Certainly. Nick, for podcast listeners who want to read your book, and I recommend it highly, how do they get a copy? Where can they find it? Where can they buy it? Oh, 
Well, that's easy. <laughs> All you have to do is go to Amazon and uh, under books and stick Wes Shum's name in the, in the search box and it'll pop right up. And you can also order it through uh, Barnes and Nobles and or you can um, order a copy from uh, the publisher, which is Jan Carroll Publishing in uh, Johnson City, uh, Tennessee. Or you can send me a QSL card and I'll be happy to uh, send you one autograph. There you go. <laughs> well, this is fascinating, Nick. Thank you very much. And thank you for, again, an excellent book. Well, thank you. I enjoyed writing it. He's an interesting man. And I'm hoping that it would inspire uh, some young person that's, that's interested in pursuing their dream, whether it's designing radio equipment, robotics, or uh, uh, any of today's most modern technologies. To, to follow their dream and, and push through. There are going to be obstacles along the way. It's what you learn from them and how you um, uh, recover from the setbacks that are going to happen. It's not easy. You just have to keep pushing. Through. Certainly. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Before we wrap everything up for this episode, I wanted to let you know about a special education project known as STARS, which stands for Space telerobotics using amateur radio. The amateur radio on the International Space Station Group, better known as ARIS, has dedicated the STARS program to the memory of ARIS technical mentor Keith Pugh, W5IU. It's a really clever program for junior and high school students in which they get to use APRS, that's the Automatic Packet Reporting System, to control robots. The catch, however, is that the APRS signals between the students and the robots have to be relayed by radio through the International Space Station when it happens to be passing overhead. This gives the students a sense of what it might be like to communicate with remote probes on the Moon or Mars. Of course, they have to have licensed radio amateur mentors on hand to help. I've seen this in action, and it's pretty amazing. The space station passes only last about 10 minutes, so there's a real sense of urgency involved in transmitting to the station and hoping the commands will be relayed properly back to Earth. The students see the results right away as their robots respond to their commands, and needless to say, the students are pretty excited. This year, Eris is looking for assistance in funding the STARS program, so if you can help them out, get on the web and go to www dot a-r-i-s-s dot o-r-g forward slash a-r-i-s-s dash star s-t-a-r dot h-t-m-l your money will most definitely be going to a good cause tune in again for the next episode of eclectic tech produced by a-r-r-l the national association for amateur radio Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.